14th Kino Kingdom now. Um, and I know that I'm just going to get this out of the way straight away because I know we don't cover TV series, but I just want to tell everyone out there to not watch Candle Cove um, on Sam's oh. Prime. It's weird that how a three, like a single 300 word piece of flash fiction, uh, flash fiction doesn't translate well into a four and a half hour TV series. And it's a lot oh. of film. bizarre. Yeah. Um, so so that would really just naturally flesh itself out, wouldn't you? <laughs> it was so. It was so many moments of just me staring, thinking, "Are you going to stop staring at fields of corn and move the plot <laughs> forwards, or is, should I just should I just should get ready for more of this?" Um, I paid for it as well, which got on my nerves even more. Yeah. Atmosphere building—that's what that is. Or, in other words, boredom. There's a there's a bit in it that proves how much they just assume people's attention is going to wander because it's just so meandering. There's a bit where the guy, the main guy in it, um, is having all these visions and stuff, and he's moved in with his mother. So he's about forty, his mother's about sixty, putting on an unconvincing American accent. She's clearly from London, and there's a bit where he opens the window and he sees his daughter up there, and I think her name's like Leah, and his mother says, "Who's that out there in the on the road?" And he says, "It's Leah, my daughter." And I thought she'd probably know who that is. She would probably know who. When she'd you probably recognise that person by name. Yeah, and sight. So <laughs> yeah, it, it's almost like you, as if they just expect the viewer to be like, "Oh yeah, I remember now." Okay, so they know we're going to be bored. So don't watch Candle Cove. It's crap. And weirdly, it's got really high uh, ratings as well on like Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes. No idea why. Boring. Right. So, um, I've we've got this is a pretty of a brief week from me because i've only got um i've only got six films actually is that line one two three four five six yes so i've got host not that one <laughs> project power hotel artemis incoming night train to terror and trick mm. i was going to watch night train to terror i should have but it's only on shutter oh is it shutter i saw it on i thought it was amazon Prime. No. Oh. i'm too cheap to pay for that yet Oh my god, you were missing. Uh, do you know? Well, we'll when obviously I, get to it. When I finish scraping the barrel of Amazon's horror collection, then I surely will. <laughs> oh yeah, you know you'll do it. It's oh, got to yeah. be on this somewhere else. Um, I, I, w- I would. It is a film I would own. Oh, I would own uh, like on a steelbook Blu-ray uh, happily. Yeah. Well, I did. Yeah. I did. Yeah. I, well, we'll get into that because I mean. I, yeah, I have bought a Blu-ray this week, but um, I'll let you know about that anyway. So, my I've got seven films this okay. time around. I have Warrior, uh, The Lighthouse, Fight Club, Gangs of New York, The Silence, The Toolbox Murders, and Hairspray. Uh, you watch it. You were cheated. Now you're looking at like like decent big budget films. Well, I'm the one. It's like the coin is tossed, and now I'm watching stuff like Incoming and Night Train to Terror. Um, I, I like the way you're describing the Toolbox Murders as <laughs> big budget mainstream. Um, I can't wait. To talk. Uh, yeah, I watched the, the Toolbox Murders years ago, and I remember it was like a, a video nasty VHS cut version, and it had just blue screen for minutes at a time when there was obviously horrific really? things. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It yeah. was just blue screen with no sound. And I was like, well, okay, obviously I shouldn't be watching this. I, mean, I was probably too young to watch it anyway. But weirdly, it was more terrifying just when like, you see someone, I don't know, like lift up a chisel to someone's mouth and then it cuts the blue screen and then your imagination just fills in the yeah. gaps. And then you get upset. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Well, this was the uncut version. So, oh. Yeah. Um, before we, before we, because you may as well go first because you've obviously got an extra okay. film, and we haven't got an action film this week because Chris is away, uh, so we haven't watched one. But we have got sponsorship this week. Oh, uh, okay. I, I managed to, I managed to nail some down. You're really um, wheeling and dealing, aren't you? So well done. It's nice. I just go on. I just go on. Um, like this is like an advertising website. You just say, oh, look, you know, if anyone wants to, you know, help out with the the bandwidth cost for the podcast, and yeah, yeah, you get some quite uh, nice big names. Like for instance, uh, this week. We're sponsored by Henry Cavill's Mirror World. Hi, I'm Henry Cavill. Do you want to see my ass? I know I do, and have, and will again. All thanks to my Mirror World. For price to be decided upon during booking, you can come into my Mirror World, a cavernous room that I've constructed in a warehouse in Stratford-upon-Haven, and stand in the centre, where you'll be surrounded by over a thousand carefully placed mirrors. I will be wearing arseless chaps like that Pokemon of Mad Max and will stand in such a way that my arse is reflected into the many mirrors in my mirror world. I will remain in this position for 16 hours. Well, what are you waiting for? Go to www.henrysmirrorworld.com. You'd be an arse to miss it. And th- and then there's a... Like we don't normally have this, but Henry Cavill's—I don't know if it's his legal team—of putting like a like a legal disclaimer. So I'll read that out as well, so we don't get in trouble. Probably best. <clears throat> so legal disclaimer: Please note, due to the unique layout of Henry's mirror world, <laughs> in order for Henry's ass to be reflected ac- accordingly, he will be standing in front of you, <laughs> around three feet away. <laughs> you must not look directly at Henry's ass. <laughs> <laughs> only look at the reflection of it around you we cannot be held responsible for what happens should you look directly at Henry's ass. my wife looked at it once and now all she does is draw pictures of Nicholas Lindhurst on a yacht rubbing peanut butter onto a wasp's nest laughing and ignoring the angry stinging of the furious insects so that's uh, sponsored this week by Henry Cavill's Mirror World. Uh, that's amazing. I didn't even know it existed, but you know, I suppose during COVID nineteen, everyone, you know, actor out of work actors need to do something to tide them over. I suppose so. And it, it makes sense. You know, and it, the thing is, as well, although that sounds, you know, like Henry Cavill's Mirror World it does sound like it would cost a lot of money. I can assume you're renting out the money you earn, renting out. Um, like a warehouse in Stratford upon Avon, uh, placing a lot of mirrors up very carefully, obviously, so it's reflected perfectly, and then just taking his, you know, pulling his ass out. Yeah, it's, it's quite a kind of low maintenance way of making up the money while he's not, you know, filming. Yeah, it's pretty simple setup, really, isn't it? Oh, that's yeah. great. Well, well, I mean, it's it's news to me, and I'm I think I'll be I'll be paying a visit. Yeah, even between if- seasons of The Witcher. <laughs> pop up the Stratford and get to know the man himself. So that's www.henrysmirrorworld.com. So yeah, Rupert, I mean, if you want to, if you want to crack on with, um, with, with, with your first film, which is, which is warrior from 2011. Is this the one with Tom Hardy and Nick Nolte in it? It is. Uh, I've not seen film. it. Oh, I've not seen that. That's really bizarre. Yeah. Mm, it's so, uh, it's about this family, the Conlans, they are Irish American, and both the brothers, played by Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton, 
Um, they've fallen out with their father, played by Nick Nolte, uh, who he was previously an alcoholic, so he didn't treat them particularly well. Um, so Tom Hardy is he plays a, an Iraq vet, uh, veteran who is very much internalizing his rage, uh, whereas uh, Joel Edgerton's character is a, a family man. Um, meanwhile, Nick Nolte, he's trying to reach out to his estranged sons. So Joel Edgerton's character, Tommy, he need, um sorry, no, not Tommy. He's Brendan. Sorry. Tommy, Tom Hardy's <laughs> character. He needs the money from this MMA tournament to give to the wife of his fallen war, war comrade. Um, whereas Brendan, Joel Edgerton's character, needs the money to save his house, basically his family. Um, and so they're both training for this tournament. Um, Nick Nolte, the father, trains Tom Hardy. And uh, Joel Edgerton is trained by none other than Frank Grillo. Good. So... <laughs> You can see it, it's some of my favorite gruff manly actors uh, in the, <laughs> and they're already good. Um, I was thinking like between this and Lawless and Mad Max Fury Road, Tom Hardy must have said about 10 words in all his films in that period. It's ridiculous. Is he, is he quiet in this film? He grunts and mumbles. <laughs> um, but it's a really good, it's a really strong acting trio, obviously. Joel Edgerton... Tom Hardy and Nick Nolte. Um, yeah. He's directed by Gavin O'Connor, who's a decent director. He also did The Accountant, which had its flaws, but, you know, it was mm. pretty competently made. Um, th- this has quite a kind of raw, realist style, and the fights are pretty visceral. Um, With the physicality, because I'm just thinking, um, we know Tom Hardy can buff up, but I'm thinking MMA fighters, is Joel Edgerton, is he believable as an MMA fighter? Yeah, I think so. He's okay. he's he's kind of the underdog in it anyway, because they're both okay. they both are ex fighters. They kind of gone their own way now. Oh, Tom Hardy is extremely buff, but um, Joel Edgerton he's very very lean and yeah, he looks powerful sort of thing, and it is believable. Cool. I think it's in a way it must have been harder to do this stuff than say a boxing film because it you know this is people almost bare fisted punch each other you know doing some pretty major kicks and stuff so it's quite impressive um i i think that um the filmmakers i think gavin o'connor he's aware that people will know where the film will end up because you've got these two brothers going into this tournament together and so it's pretty clear where it's going to go so what he does which is quite what quite wisely does is for the first 90 minutes or so, he's basically building up the stakes between the characters, between the brothers, especially and via their really uh, Nick Nolte is the father. He's such a kind of, he's such a sad man. He's so, he's so kind of pathetic, so desperate to like for their approval. And yet they both completely disregard him and just treat him as a total failure as a father. And he's so broken and the thing is, he's not drinking anymore. And you know, there's going to be a, a point at which he's gonna, he's gonna break. Reach for the can of skull. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, so you know, it's, it takes a lot of time building up the kind of in the relationships between the characters. So by the time the inevitable showdown happens, it it does have real kind of emotional impact. And there's a scene where Tom Hardy like 
helps Nick Nolte into bed, which is just an absolute killer. It's just so sad. That scene. Mm. No words, just just like an old man, just like really breathing heavily, being carried to bed by his son. Um, mm. Yes. Um, and yeah, I, I guess with any sports fighting movie, there's not really that many places it can go in terms of narrative. It's always going to end up with a big tournament and a kind of big showdown. So it really, it, what differentiates them is the the filmmaking craft, the script and the performances. And on all those terms, I'd say that Warrior is pretty much bang on. Um, it's, it is an unusually emotionally engaging fight film. Um, but it also does have plenty of decent fight scenes. For... I was going to say, is it, is it like them training and leading up to it? Or is it like an actual tournament where it shows them getting to the end? As opposed yes. to just, it's an arranged fight and then... Yeah, it does. It, it's not like it's just pure talking build-up and character development all the way there. There are fights along the way, sort of thing. Um, but I just think it... it it really does a good job of building up the stakes so that it really matters what happens at the end. So in that regard, very good. Yeah, I think it's um, a very, very competent film and it is recommended. Oh, nice. This is one. I think I've got a feeling that the reason I haven't watched it with that, that trio of heroes in it is, is because it struck me as it could be a sort of family drama. And, and I'm really, I don't like crying. So I, I just think, oh, is it going to make me cry? Especially because Nick Nolte's in it. So I've always, probably will watch it one day when I'm more more emotionally robust. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it I, is, I it's very much, yeah, it's very much about brothers and fathers and sons. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of those movies which is almost designed to allow men to cry. Oh, okay, then I'll, well, I will watch it at some point, but I'm just not entirely sure when. What I did get around to watching is a film called Host, not that one. Um, this isn't a Korean film from a while ago. This is a new low-budget horror film that was, it's I don't know what you call them, like a screen view horror. You know when it's like the camera's on the, like a webcam horror thing? Oh, there right. must be a name for that genre. We should make one up. Bert. <laughs> Gerald. Bert Lang okay. <laughs> Gerald Lancaster. Um um yeah it's it's uh, it's 60 minutes 60 minutes which is good um this is on shutter i think and it is a film that's made it's obviously been made over the over the the covid lockdown period because that very much features the whole it is quite clever actually and quite well done yeah, how it all fast track doesn't it it must have washed it out honestly so it's yeah it's i think it's five girls and and one dude who all meet up for this sort of online seance thing that uh, one of them has arranged. They're all in different parts of the world. Um, and so it's sort of, you know, it's, it's daytime in some places, night in other. And you, you sort of, um, you're in the zoom chat with them. And it's quite clever because you know that the, um, when the film starts and gets going, you know, after like, I think it's 40 minutes, zoom calls, just time out and you have to yeah. all log in again. That is a sort of feature in it as well. So <laughs> they really just, and it's quite cool. When I was watching, it, I was just kind of quietly impressed by the fact that of oh, fair play, they've really stuck to their guns and obviously all made this completely separate from each other and made it all virtually, you know, yeah. uh, and I quite like that was quite a neat idea. And it, although it's 60 minutes, it pumps along and you know, the seance goes horribly wrong within seconds of it starting. Yeah, and, it is quite it is quite spooky and there are some really cool moments and some jump scares but most of it is just tension building um and yeah the effects are pretty cool as well and again it's made i was all the more impressed by it because it was all made uh, over a distance 
So if you well, I, yeah. uh, you know, a throwaway horror sixty, I wouldn't watch it again, but I am glad I watched it, and I would recommend it for people who, who like um, low budget horrors with like a high concept sort of thing. Is it well so, acted? Yeah, it's pretty natural, naturalistically acted. It's not. Um, they're all kind of sort of friends that have known each other for a while. So there's a right. lot of banter going on. There's nothing really. It's basically them sort of chatting and then panicking. So it's yeah, because I, I feel that these sorts of films do rest very heavily on the quality of the performance, really, don't they? Because there's nothing else to. There's nothing. Yeah, you're literally looking at their face. So yeah, but the, I think um, there's no bad actors in it. It's. It's again, although it does rely on the quality of the performance, it's a it's it's limited, isn't it? What that person can do. So, yeah. it didn't. It didn't. I didn't notice anything that made me think, "Anger banger, this isn't very good." And to be honest, it it bangs along so quickly anyway. Yeah, <laughs> that, um, yeah by the time you question anything, it's over with. So yeah, that the host. I, I recommend. So that's yeah. it's called host, and it's on um, Shudder. Sh- Shudder, yeah. um, which obviously my trial has definitely ended now, so that is that's it. That's it. No more Shudder for, no for this podcast. I, I gotta say, this is like the third, between that, I think it was called Searching and um, Dark Web, yeah, Unfriended Dark Web. I've watched three of these Gerald Lancaster's, Gerald Lancaster's, and they've all been pretty good <laughs> and all taking a different approach to things, so yeah, I'm. It's one of those things that I think I would, if I come across a few more, I would be, you know, intrigued to watch them because I've been let down yeah. yet. Yeah, <clears throat> it seems like so, uh, a little new kind of found footage type thing, which will no doubt produce some very good examples and then become very tiresome. <laughs> <In the future. laughs> you know what's going to happen. <laughs> you can't wait. Um, yeah, so that, that's that's host sixty minutes of of fun and frolics and fright. Oh, nice. I can go on the poster. <laughs> uh, so, well, from one horror to another, uh, The Lighthouse, which I watched on Amazon uh, and paid for. <clears throat> I believe you paid £1.99 for it. I did, because they're still not quite ready to just unleash it. I'm, I, this well, is one that's very much on my radar, so I'm, I'm looking forward to hear what you say about this. Yeah, so this is Robert Eggers' follow-up to The Witch. Um and it, it has a similar kind of ye olde period setting, although this is much later. This is the set in the 1890s. There are literally two characters, both named Thomas, played by Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe is the saltiest sea dog you've ever seen. He's like, he's a veteran lighthouse keeper. Um, Robert Pattinson is the kind of newbie and he just gets all these awful jobs to do constantly. Like, uh, it's quite funny, like how awful, how terrible the jobs are that he has to do, and so dangerous some of them. Like, off this... Sorry, what, what, what accents are they speaking? Is it like a it's, British? Well, it's kind of Irish, Cornish, something like real, real salty kind of Atlantic accents, basically. Um, so it's basically two hours of these men, particularly Robert Pattinson, going mad. Uh, <laughs> he he has these visions of a really creepy mermaid, um, and at times he he will see Willem Dafoe going up to the like lighthouse, just like in kind of Danny Boyle's Sunshine. He goes up to the 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 light itself at the top, 
and like gyrates up there and he may possibly be mutating into a kind of Lovecraftian monster, which is amazing. Um, yeah, you don't want that from a workmate, do you? <laughs> no, you don't, do you? Um, the first thing you really notice, it, the way it's filmed, it's it's filmed in 35mm black and white. And the ratio, the uh, actual shape of the screen, is almost perfectly square. Um, and it, it's a really, really interesting combination because, like, there's this thing about confinement, and that, this is definitely a theme of the film, Um but it works so well when you've got the monochrome, right? And like this is this is the perfect film to really test out 4K because the use of blacks in this film, like in some scenes, um, you've obviously got these big black sidebars where the the actual frame is cut off. But within that, within the frame itself, <clears throat> it will be filled with just pure blackness and just a candle light kind of blooming out of the middle of the screen with their faces in it and stuff. And so it's almost like the blacks bleed into the sidebars. It's really, really, this really confining claustrophobic effect. It's okay. quite amazing. Um, in a way, I suppose it, it it can possibly highlight the limitations of 4K when it's streamed because 4K when it's streamed is still pixelated. I'm just going to say it. It's not <laughs> as good as you see on a disc, but there you go. What are you going to do? If it was going to be as good as you see on a disc, then it would have to be, you know, you'd be streaming 100 gigabytes or whatever over the internet. Anyway, so, um, but yeah, the, the use of language is really, just like in The Witch, if you remember, it was like, it, it had this very authentic period language. And it's the same here, particularly from Willem Dafoe. It's amazing. He, he had these really long so pseudo poetic pseudo biblical speeches about the power of the sea and there's one kind of famous now famous speech he makes where he's it's like he's lit from below and he's got really wide eyes and he does not blink for two minutes it's incredible and he just keeps ranting on uh, yeah it's it's a pure art house horror movie there's if you're looking for kind of narrative tightness um or like narrative discipline uh, sort of regular twists and turns. There's not really any of that, but it's really all about if you love kind of just really, really dark, heavy mood and rich art design, um, and and the kind of horror of the mind. Then it's a it's really, really it's a wonderful nightmare. So uh, it's also surprisingly funny as well. I found like extremely darkly funny. <laughs> yeah, this. There's one scene where Robert Pattinson, one of his awful jobs, he has to like carry out the slot buckets. Oh. <laughs> he carries them out, and do you see him like he's he is walking through a storm. It is the wind is howling, and it's coming at him, and he's carrying these buckets along like the coast, like really ragged, rugged coast. And you just watch him for about thirty seconds walking on the coast, gets to the edge, and obviously he goes to like throw the bucket into the water, and the wind just sweeps it back at him. He just gets covered <laughs> in fecal matter. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so funny. But yeah, it, he's like in the distance as well when that happens. It's it yeah it, in he just like you just hear him just under his breath say shit because I had to have the subtitles on because uh, like the the language is the accents are so thick and like uh, and the language is so strange that I just had to have a, have the subtitles on to understand what they're saying. Brilliant. The thing 
I suppose though, having the subtitles on when you're watching a film that's evocative of you know the turn of the century, it, it kind of <laughs> I guess it would just work with it. Yes. <clears throat> Yeah, because it, it's like some of the, the way they use language and their, their accents almost makes it seem like a foreign language anyway. But yeah, it's it's really good. What kind of music is it in there? Does it use music at all or is it? I honestly can't remember. What does it? I think it uses like old sea shanties and stuff. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to watch this tonight, am I? And possibly some like ethereal kind of ambient music. I don't remember the music, put it that way. But I okay. suspect it probably did have some. Maybe it was just wasn't intrusive or anything. This is um, the thing. I find sometimes if I can't remember the music, which ha- actually happens to a film, like um, yeah, when I when I think about music from a film and I can't remember, I assume that's a good thing. Because yeah, because it didn't piss me off. I think so. I think it's more about the sound design mm-hmm. apart from anything because the constant howling of the wind and you've got this um, this kind of foghorn sound, which is all through the film. Like it's a regular foghorn sound. I guess they must have had that in tandem with the light, obviously spinning, so mm. ships would not only see it but hear it before they hit the rocks or whatever. Um, but yeah, and it's got this really, really strange predilection with seagulls because there's this myth that the seagulls are um, in, they're the embodiment of the souls of fallen sailors. And that becomes quite an amusing thing later on because Robert Pattinson is absolutely tormented by these seagulls and he really <laughs> wants to kill one of them. Uh, it's yeah, it's a it's a very it's a very good film. It's is yeah, it's very much in the kind of vein of The Witch. Probably a little bit funnier, I'd say. Probably talkier. Um, well, in all fairness, The Witch wasn't really laugh out loud. Knee slapping Ben Hill territory was no. it? But this yes, it's yeah, it's. Uh, it's as unique, I would say, as that. I, I suppose and, as well, if you're not dealing with horror involving children, it gives you more freedom for comedy because, like you so. say, you, you can do these horrendous things to adults and you can still have a humorous slant on it. Yes. Robert Pattinson has a rough time. And it is, it's funny in its pure misery darkness. And I can't wait for Robert Egger's next film, which is about Vikings, I think. And he's oh, managed he, to bring Bjork out of acting retirement for it which is quite exciting so you like vikings you do rupert um, interesting uh, speaking of uh, old bobby pat pat did you watch the batman trailer i did watch the batman trailer did you notice that it featured nirvana something in the way i did notice it featured nirvana my trousers i i said to faye where are my trousers where have they gone and she yeah. said you've never had trousers <laughs> <laughs> the one I watched that, I was like, oh, haven't I? I'm always a bit chilly. But no, I watched that trailer, and it reminded me a lot of The Crow. Yeah. Um, a lot of the visuals and stuff. So I'm, I, I was, so there's someone on Twitter I saw a few days ago saying, oh, is it just me or is, is everyone just sick of Batman? And I thought, I'm, I'm not, I'm, no, <laughs> not at all. Not, not Which is all. weird because to me, the whole, the whole Bat, uh, Ben Affleck Batman mm. basically completely passed me by because I just didn't watch yeah. any of the films so it's almost like it didn't happen for me well you're gonna which... get another chance to see ben affleck when he is in the flash which oh. um apparently dave informs me that it <clears throat> is uh, based on flashpoint so it's got a lot of multiverse type stuff and so this is where the flash will be meeting other batmans including michael keaton so we'll see how that goes I'm guessing okay. Christian Bale isn't coming back for it. I don't know. In the Flashpoint Paradox, anima- 
in the Flashpoint Paradox animated um, animated series, a uh, video, sorry, James Woods plays one of them, and I'm pretty sure they probably wouldn't get him in for anything at the moment. <laughs> Perhaps so. not. Yeah. So anyway, The Lighthouse is on Prime for one ninety nine at the moment, or I'm guessing it's going to be come to it free in the near future, but it's definitely worth it. But make sure you try and watch it with a really good connection in 4k okay yeah okay then i'll, I'll do that with them um, with with the, with the streaming can you if you buffer it, if you pause it would that improve it no although i don't know uh, you could obviously download films but i'm not sure i'm still not sure you're going to get the full the full like true 4k experience uh or not maybe you will do visually but another thing is is that it's the sound quality i mean like when you there is a a clear difference when it comes to like sound like image quality but definitely sound quality when it comes to even blu-rays are significantly better it matters less with older films but something like this yeah you want to watch it in the best format possible i would say but it's still very good anyway um, I watched Netflix's Project Power with Jamie Foxx a few days ago. Um, and uh, you must have seen this advertised. It's all over Netflix at the moment. Yeah, it's got Joseph Gordon-Levitt in it. Yes, it has. So I, 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 real, I didn't realise until recently how much I, I liked him and how he's actually everything he's ever been in. I've really liked going back to Brick. I think I think that was like 2008 or seven or something. In the Dark Knight um, Rises? <clears throat> Uh, I've never made it that far in the film where he turns up. I've turned it off three times before the 40-minute mark, Rupert. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, Project Power is, is uh, Jamie Foxx plays a character called the Major, and he lives in a, in a, a it, I guess it's a an L.A. where um, this pill called Power, which you twist and, it, and just put in your gob and swallow, um, gives you a sort of random power. I say random. It gives you a power for five minutes, but whatever power you get the first time you keep getting like if you burst into flames and you turn into like you know johnny storm from the fantastic four every time you take the pill that same thing will happen um and joseph gordon levitt plays a uh a, a a cop who is after the pills as well for sort of unknown reasons special effects are pretty cool and it's just like like i said it's just really enjoyable watching him track down these people and everyone's taking these pills around him and just seeing what happens but also there's a there's a female character in it a young girl who's um i guess she's 15 or 16 who i was a bit concerned because i thought oh this is like quite a cool superhero-y action film do i want a child being dragged around slow and everything but it's actually that part of it's handled pretty well and it's written into the plot nicely. It's not just like an, a 90 minute irritating escort mission. Right. So I'm looking uh, at you line of duty. <laughs> yes. So no, this is a lot of the film is primarily set at night as well. So it, it's really nicely lit. Um, and it's like quite, quite a booming uh, sound design to it as well. Um, and I, I really liked it. It's again, it's not a film I probably return to, but um it's on Netflix, Project Power, and it's it's first thought it was good to see Jamie Foxx in a film again because I haven't seen him one for a long yep. time. It seems to be, and uh, and yeah, it's just it's just like a cool you know, like ninety minute action film. So get on that bus. So in Joseph Gordon-Levitt is good in it. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he's quite yes. slight, and to see him sort of um, 
cast as like a you know a, like a hardballed cop or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. He seems to get away with it now because he does throw himself into things, and yeah. he's so likable. Yeah, he does. He does throw himself into things. I, I remember seeing him. Well, the first film role I saw him in was Mysterious Skin, and if you know what that's about, then you have to throw yourself into that. Like it's a full-on film about child abuse and uh, rent boys and all sorts. So yeah, he didn't mess about there. But he's fine. Yeah, he, in everything he's in, he always gives it his all. I mean, he wasn't. He certainly was not the worst thing about The Dark Knight Rises. The worst thing about The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, he well, where do you, where do you start that? the whole narrative the the turgid nature of the narrative the the fact that um bane is turned he's they've taken what is essentially just a a a physical threat and turned him into this weird verbose uh like soapboxing like uh spokesperson um the whole thing the whole stuff with talia is just so mishandled and her death is awful. One of the worst deaths in movie history. Everything at the end doesn't make sense. Uh, It's got that really irritating thing that, well, Christopher Nolan, what he does, he will always have these overlapping action scenes. And as we saw in Inception, it can work very well if all of the action scenes are as interesting as each other. But in Dark Knight Rises, it really it it really doesn't work at all because you've got some really boring stuff happening at the same time as really exciting stuff, and it's like stop cutting away, you know? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty drab. I, around. I don't think I'll ever watch that film. I don't think I'll ever be able to sit through it. Yeah, I just every time I've tried to watch, it, I've just I've, I've been bored. Yeah, and, think, and there's always like two and a half hours left, and you think, oh come on, it is. So very, no, yeah, I'm happy with that. it's a very long film. Um, yes. Yeah, so okay, so that was Project Power. So Project Power, good flick. Yes, good, and that's a Netflix original, I think. It is indeed. Okay, well I'll um, move on to Fight Club then, which is uh, on Prime, and Fight Club was made in 1999, and it was. For a certain generation, I suppose it was quite a, f- a formative film, really, alongside The Matrix, which obviously came out the same year. And I think both films rest on this basic idea that there's, there is another way of perceiving the world, essentially, and perhaps another way of living in the world. Although I'm not sure anyone did on the basis of these, but there you go. Um, so Edward Norton plays the narrator, who is this regular guy with a dull office job, and he looks for meaning in these uh, meeting groups for alcoholics and cancer sufferers. Um, and there he meets his equal, uh, the equally mischievous Marla, played by Helena Bonham Carter, very much cast against type. Um, anyway, one day, he, he, Edward Norton, he returns to his apartment to find out <clears throat> it has exploded and his Ikea dream is over. He meets this guy called Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt. And they have a play fight in a parking lot. And anyway, Edward Norton, he loves the unfettered free will uh, of Tyler Durden and moves into this horrible squat with him. Really disgusting squat. Um, And from there, Fight Club takes off, basically. Um, Starts off with just men scrapping, getting rid of their 
repressed rage and it transforms into this sort of anti-establishment movement. They start out with pranks like graffiti and art destruction and just starting fights with random strangers, but then it becomes more dangerous and more violent. And basically Edward Norton is waking up to the fact that Tyler Durden wants to see the world literally burn. So, yeah, so Fight Club, it was, I guess it was, it's kind of the zenith of that pseudo-anarchic movement of the 1990s, which kind of began with indie films. And by the end of the decade, that indie spirit was coming into the mainstream much more. Um, and then I suppose I could, you could say in the 2000s, comic book movies kind of swung the dial back towards more conservative values. But yeah, yeah, it's, yeah well, it's. I've seen Equilibrium as well. Yeah, <laughs> it is extraordinarily stylish, and it has it has this kind of. It's directed by David Fincher, and it has a similar grimy brown aesthetic as like the Seven or the Game, but it it actually has itself a kind of this comic book sensibility about it. It's it is a bit of a masterpiece of editing, I've got to say, um, and I like how it doesn't. There is a very, very famous twist in the film, and I but I like how it doesn't completely rest on that twist. Um, and in fact, it what it does is it allows the twist to kind of gradually dawn on the audience. So, I mean, I watched it with my wife who'd never seen it before, and mm. she was picking up the clues as to what where it was going. Um, and it was so it doesn't it didn't completely rely or just on that twist to kind of make sense of everything or whatever. Um, I suppose in a way it's it's like a, a bit of a cautionary tale because you know the stuff we take for granted as in the actual material stuff that we buy for ourselves and it, it mm. may seem kind of empty and meaningless <clears throat> at times, but but if you take that to its logical conclusion and, and you do end up tearing down the capitalist hierarchy itself, um, which is probably not that helpful in the long term. Um, there is something almost, I found there's something almost quaint about the film's central concern about consumerism. Um, Cause it's, it's almost like if only life were that simple, <laughs> that your greatest concern was the emptiness of materialism. And in that way, I think it's the kind of the quintessential pre nine 11 film. Uh, because I think, it's almost like world events probably overtook that that sensibility, that anti-materialism kind of culture. Um, and here's the thing: the club, the Fight Club itself, is in the kind of manner and mood of it, it. It's it's kind of more akin to that kind of like the so-called toxic masculinity of the of what we'd call the alt right nowadays, and yet. And yet it's interesting that now we're in a position where it's the radical left who are looking to defund the police and tear down civilization. So it is quite interesting to look at it from the perspective of today. But yeah, so yes, politically very interesting and a very well-made film. And the fact that it doesn't completely rely on its twist means that it's still rewatchable uh, and still, you know, an intelligent, uh, smart and extremely violent film. So there you go. Yeah, I must admit I haven't seen it for um, 
for a long time, but it's cool to know that it still stands up. Um, what yes. doesn't stand up and did, didn't at the time was the PlayStation 2 version of Fight Club, um, which was absolutely dreadful. And upon completion, you could unlock the character Fred Durst to close your eyes. Is, uh, <laughs> before he went into oh. directing. Yeah, before um, he just started directing um, John Travolta. Yeah. <laughs> In an orchestra. Um <laughs> It's it's oh yeah the other thing is it's it's got a soundtrack by um, the Dust Brothers so it's like real it it's that part is slightly dated I've got to say like because it's very much like like kind of roaring breakbeat with electronic sounds over the top it's that very much that like late nineties early two thousands thing um, see also swordfish yeah oh god yeah yeah. I was. I do really like Swordfish, but I think it's just because yeah. I like, I like Hugh Jackman so much. John Travolta's here in Swordfish is baffling, <laughs> baffling here, yeah. um, and Harley Player Barry Wolf as well. That's always nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched Hotel Artemis with Jodie Foster, Dave Bautista, Zachary Quinto, and Jeff Goldblum. Um, and have you seen this? I have, and I like all the people you just mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I quite like this actually. I didn't know what to expect, but I just just clicked on it on the strength of thinking I haven't seen Jodie Foster in a film for a while. So the premise is that the Hotel Artemis is is in a way it's kind of like the um, Continental in the John Wick films in that yeah. it's it's a an underworld safe hospital for for the criminals of the city, and it's taking place during a massive massive riot um, for clean water. Um, so at the start of the film the main character whose name escapes me, he's the only name I didn't write down, um, got gets sort of caught in a botched bank robbery and him and his brother, the only survivors, but his brother's been shot. And he goes to the nurse played by Jodie Foster to try and get him sort of patched up. And as this is all happening, there's an assassin there to, um, to take out an unknown target. And Jeff Goldblum effectively runs all of LA, gets brought in as well. Jeff Goldblum's amazing in this film, like <laughs> yeah. he is in every film. But what what really struck me about this film is Jodie Foster is looks so meek yes. and old, um, and and she's got this like really heartbreaking little like shuffle she does all the time. Like she's always rushing around, and she's got this kind of like slightly hunched old lady daughter going on. It's and the first film I've I, seen I, was... where she has been cast as an old lady. Yes, yeah, and the thing is, I thought she's not. She's, I think she's in her mid to late fifties, but I'm assuming that they put makeup on it because oh, yeah. she looked old, old. Um, but yeah, really, like, I love Dave Bautista. Every time I see him in anything, I just love him a bit. And um, and yeah, Jeff Goldblum rocks up. Zachary Quinto is someone who always irritates me just by looking at him. I don't know what it is. It's the same thing with um, Wes Bentley. I just look at them and get irritated. I don't know what it is, mm. but that kind of works in this film. Um, and I like it. I like the whole thing that it was set in a, a single block, and um, there's like a lot of little sort of sub uh, sub stories that cross over each other. And I liked how tight tight it was, and so uh, contained. Yes. So yeah, I I I was a big fan of this film. Yeah, I, I, Sterling K. Brown is probably the other person you were thinking of, the black guy. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I, don't, I haven't. Seen, I don't think I've seen him in any other films. I know that he's in This Is Us, which is a very popular TV series, uh, and he's very good in that. But he's so different in that because he plays like quite a like uh, quite a serene intellectual guy, uh, and not 
really an action man beefcake at all. So he needs to take his in this film when he does the bank robbery, he's wearing like a really tasty, tight fitted, like a gray suit with about three layers on with a, like a, a waistcoat over the top that is so tight. And there are so many scenes where he's like sitting down and he is sweating. And you think just undo the buttons, Sterling, undo the buttons. And, and like it just looks so warm in this like hot <laughs> suit. Um, but uh, I, I do love it. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was surprisingly decent film, and yeah, the closest thing we've got yet to a Hotel Continental film, I suppose. Yeah, aren't they doing a TV series? I I've heard about that, yes, years ago, and it still hasn't materialised. So I don't know what's going on with that. Yeah, I know they're making Jackie Next films back to back, so got another couple of them coming. That's fine. Keep them coming, I say. Um, but yeah, Hotel Artemis. I would. It's one of those things that I wouldn't mind if they if they did make a sequel because, um, I it's 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 anything set in a tower block that's done well. Stuff like the Raid, or yep. um, you know, Dr- uh, Judge Dredd, and now this. Uh, it's it's kind of I don't know. It just seems like it's it's a small enough place for you to have a sort of mental geography of wherever it is, and it has to be a kind of tightly compact story that's quite character driven. But also, there's enough room to explore and be in lots, lots of different locations. So, and I like yeah. the set design as well—the sort of uh, early turn of the century, sort of clanking huge lifts and stuff. So, yes. yeah, I was a big fan. Yeah, I, I don't think it did very well. I think it flopped quite hard, mm. unfortunately. So that's probably one. Oh, I'm really? Sequel. Yeah. Uh, uh. Yeah, it's a pity because it's pretty solid, really. Let's move on to Gangs of New York then, which is on Prime at the moment. Um. Yeah, it, kind of continuing on from the what I was saying about Fight Club, actually. Um, well, actually, the... I'm just thinking, and it continues from last week, talking about The Departed as well. Is this Scorsese yeah. as well? It is Scorsese. This is the first film. This is the first film I ever saw with my first girlfriend in the cinema. So I really? Quite well. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really <laughs> on that continuing on that topic of the breakdown of civilization. Um. Uh, and like and the whole you know the calls to defund the police etc these days so i think that if anyone who has got thoughts of abolishing the police force may want to watch this film <laughs> as a, a warning of what a world looks like uh when it's just under the thrall of like gangs and corrupt officials because the best thing about the this film in a way is how it shows us a world of such deeply entrenched corruption and violence it's set in the 1860s um very briefly in the 1840s but the but 1860s anyway during the civil war and it's set in five points which is in manhattan uh sort of down by chinatown a little italy and um leonardo dicaprio plays uh, amsterdam valen uh who's an irish immigrant whose father was slain by Butcher Bill, uh, played by Daniel Day-Lewis. Butcher Bill is a so-called American native who runs the five points through violence and intimidation. Um, Now, Butcher Bill does not know the identity of of Amsterdam, of Leonardo DiCaprio. So Leo gets in with his gang so he can get close to Bill and kill him. Um... Meanwhile, there are all kinds of other interested parties who are bearing down on New Yorkers. Uh, 
there's this local politician named Tammany, played by Jim Broadbent. He's very amusing. Uh, he's trying to get votes, so he's like allying himself with the different gangs. And meanwhile, the the U.S. Army is trying to recruit basically poor people to fight the South in the Civil War. Um, and all these elements are basically closing in on each other and getting more ratcheted up and sort of heading towards an almighty kind of collision uh, at the end. Um, yeah, I, I, I really like this film. I love how it, it shows how America was built very quickly on very in very competitive circumstances and and sometimes it really shows how absurd that was there's this scene near the start where there's this fire in this building and like a load of different fire engines all turn up um at different times and they're all arguing over who gets the honor to put it out and who gets to basically steal all the stuff inside so that was quite amusing and and it, you know that kind of highlights just how ridiculous it is um, to live in a world where none of that stuff is kind of uh, at state level, but it's all kind of local, local interests all competing with each other. Um, now I mentioned when I when we spoke about The Departed, I think last week was it, and that was Martin Scorsese in very kind of quiet mode. It wasn't very flashy. Whereas this is really one of Martin Scorsese's most kind of lavish and beautiful looking films. And he uses a lot of crane shots to capture these enormous bustling sets. Um, although actually some of the best scenes are the much simpler ones with just people talking. There's a, my favorite scene is when Butcher Bill is sat at um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's bedside, like wrapped in an American flag uh talking about his his father and and just being he's got this really quietly terrifying sense of menace about him daniel day lewis in this film like he can be talking about the most kind of noble things of honor and stuff and yet it's he's this viciousness in the way that he speaks is, is quite scary um i think in the end the the, the kind of very the personal rivalry between uh Leonardo DiCaprio and Daniel Day-Lewis's characters, it does become a bit lost in all the bombs and the bluster. But in a way, I think that may be the point, really, because it's a story about how New York City was formed. Um, yet those smaller stories are kind of lost in the pages of history uh, under the weight of this civil war. And overall, it's extremely cynical about America. And I wonder... I was thinking about this because it it was one of the criticisms was how at the time was how cynical it was about America and how it was forged. And I wonder if this might be a clue as to why it wasn't that much embraced by audiences at the time, because I think it did OK, but it wasn't like for the size of the production, it wasn't like a massive hit. And it was it was actually made in 2001, but it was delayed to 2002 due mm. to 9-11. And and I, I sense that that was an event. Nine Eleven was this event which inspired, especially in American audiences, an enormous sense of patriotism and perhaps this like protective instinct towards the U.S. And then you get a film like Gangs of New York, which really, really, you know, set in New York, and it really runs directly counter to that sense sense of pride. So perhaps people just weren't in the mood for it, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but looking Went from. 
<laughs> you're looking from afar. Uh, it's just a really, really nicely produced film, and it's got a really smart script and beautiful visuals. It's also unimaginably violent as well. Uh, so, yeah. So good times. I remember like a lot of obviously butcher bill. Some of the violence is it's, it's knife work driven, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. knife and club based violence. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. it's it's very brutal. Beating someone to death with a small chocolate biscuit is one of the most violent ways you can go. Wow, wow. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's some of the editing is a little bit. I'm guessing it's Thelma Shoemaker because she edits all his films. But um, some of the editing is a little bit jarring. Like when it's when it speeds up and slows down the footage and stuff, it can it, it's a little bit distracting but it yeah it's it's definitely a visually very arresting film put it that way well we come now to the first duffer of <laughs> our talk um you first, know but not the last um, trust me <laughs> i you know how i am a big fan of scott atkins the martial artist um an action star let's call him what he is i am aware his best film that I've seen is Avengement, which is a really gritty sort of action film set in uh, in London. And the worst film I've seen him in is Incoming. And this is this what's made what made this worse is at the moment Scott Adkins is doing this um, in lockdown this show this uh, series on YouTube called Art of Action, and he's interviewing people like Mark DeCascas, Tony Jaa, um, Iko Uweis, um, all these big names, Michael J. White and stuff, and he. It's really like an hour long, and it's really interesting to see how they do certain choreography, telling some behind-the-scenes tales of, of, of the larger films and stuff. So I'm completely hip-steep in Scott Adkins at the moment, and I was saying to Faye, we need to watch a Scott Adkins film, basically because I need to look at him. I need to see his face. And um, <laughs> she sort of finally like gave in and said, okay, check on one. So the one that on... Um, I think it was on Netflix, it's called Incoming, and it's his most recent film, 2019, and it is absolute shit. Um, <laughs> it, there's no two ways about it. Um, it's a sci-fi film, which should have set alarm bells ringing. What sh- should have set further alarm bells ringing is that it's a sci-fi film set in a single corridor. Um, this is obviously a film that was made on an absolutely minuscule budget, so the plot is that Scott Adkins, um, uh, a a, a sort of a, like a pilot and a doctor uh, are going up to this space station that houses six of these convicts. At the start, you see um, you see that like Big Ben blows up, gets blown up by terrorists, and then you see someone who may or may not be involved in it just watching watching a GIF. They say it's a news bulletin. He's clearly just watching a GIF of it blowing up because they have no other footage on repeat. <laughs> um, and they take him off. They sort of black bag him and he wakes up in the space station and in the space station he and the other sort of cohorts they don't know they each don't know the others are there but they just get tortured on a daily basis to try and get information about their organization and scott adkins turns up with this pilot to try and um well you don't know why but it's it's just to see if if there's any information coming from the space station for some reason they've got these people on now a lot of problems with this, Rupert. Right. The main problem is that is that why are you torturing these six people um, to find out more information about the terrorist group they work for when they are the terrorist group? 
it doesn't matter you caught them the way they talk to them is they make them listen to really extreme metal music at high volume in these little sort of canisters that they, they kept in basically and they just sort of freeze burn them all the time and when Scott Adkins turns up, and you know, you know Scott Adkins has got uh, has got. This is the love that you're working at, right? You know Scott Adkins has an ulterior motive because he's got spiky hair and he's wearing black and he's shaved a bit of one of his eyebrows out. Right. So that's that's the level you're working at. And um, so they turn up and they say, "Oh, have any of these guys from this Wolfpack terrorist group have they said anything? Anything at all of any value for the last half a decade that you've been torturing them on a daily basis?" And the guy, the the guy who's in control of the tour, who's the only bloke on the space station, is like, "Nah, but they're going to crack any minute now." And uh, I don't know. I don't think. I think they're going to keep shtum, to be honest. So <laughs> what happens is the terrorists kind of break out of their cells, and it's it's like a you know us against them on the space station. And the film is just boy, it's endless bickering, endless just just constant dialogue. And there's a bit in it that that. I did make it through to the end, but the bit that made me think, oh, do you know, I might turn this off, is where they are in a, in a, they get the three good characters are locked in this room, and Scott Adkins says, well, we can't go out there because obviously they've got tasers. So although we can maybe overpower a few of them and they've made these makeshift weapons, if one of them shoots us with a taser, yeah. we're going to drop. So we need, you know, we need to kind of sort a way around that. And the female doctor has this face that's like oh i've got an idea and she rips up a load of carpet and mm-hmm. i thought oh do you know what that's that would work because the tasers would be fired they hit the carpet and, and bounce off so i thought she would say well we'll just put this carpet underneath our you know suits these kind mm-hmm. of space suits they got they'll shoot us the tasers and then they won't have any impact but no no she doesn't say anything and she just walks around for the rest of the film holding a bit of carpet in front of herself so <laughs> <laughs> this triangular piece of carpet and i thought you just look stupid and it doesn't really help the two guys who are going to be getting involved in the combat um it's just bad it's just a bad film and what's what's made even worse is that scott adkins is clearly uh, like is is it can be a decent actor and he's a very good martial artist yeah. but he's in fights with people who i assume have no martial arts training so it's all kind of diluted yeah, it's it's a film that feels like it should have been made at the start of everyone's careers, not this far through them, and it's quite embarrassing for everyone involved, really. It's just yeah. terrible and cheap. So that's incoming with Scott Adkins. Don't watch it. God, that sounds like real filler nonsense, doesn't it? Uh, it really, really is, yeah. Well, okay. Well, you've you've described a duffer, so I'll do the same, shall I? I'll talk about The Silence. Please do. The Silence is on Netflix now. Now, this is a film... Well, okay, I will describe the plot first, because then we can get to the problems. So, at the start, these cave divers unleash a swarm of blind flying creatures, um, and these creatures rapidly take over the world, as far as you can see, anyway. Has this got Stanley Tucci in it? Yeah, it has got Stanley Tucci in it, yeah. Yes, I've seen this, yes. Okay, yes. Uh, the creatures are guided by the slightest sound. Um, the one deviation we get from A Quiet Place is that we see the kind of lead into the catastrophe. So we see Stanley Tucci with his family... Uh, which include his wife, played by Miranda Otto, uh, his mother-in-law, his daughter, and his son. The daughter is deaf, so helpfully the family is 
like conversant in sign language. So things kick off and people are pretty viciously torn apart by this swarm of creatures. Um, although individually the monsters aren't quite as threatening as they are in a quiet place, frankly, but but they come in as a swarm. So the family make their way out of the city and they find their way to this handily abandoned house. Um, they're doing okay until this local religious cult rocks up at the door and then led by a poor man's uh, Michael Sheen um, and things go pretty much downhill from there. Um, so as you can see, the the plot is very similar to A Quiet Place. And I, I was looking into this to see if it was a rip-off or a knock-off or, or what, or it was just pure chance. And I, I'd have to say, they were filmed at the same time, apparently, in 2017. Okay. Bear in mind that A Quiet Place was filmed in 2017, released in 2018, quite standard. This has only just been released. It was only released in 2019, it was also written by someone who has written scripts for the asylum. So we can see ah, that yes. scripts then. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I'm not so sure. I do think it may be a, a bit of a cash in, you know, the asylum do get some pretty quick turnarounds on these films. It's not <laughs> like that level of terrible. I mean, it's got higher production values, but still, um, I mean, we're talking, it's directed by someone whose credits include the likes of Mortal Kombat, Annihilation, and Annabelle. So, mm, anyway, so I'll go through the good stuff first. It's not very long, so that's that's an advantage for any film. Uh, Some of the CG is decent enough, although there are places where I felt that practical effects would have worked just as well or better uh and unlike a quiet place there is a sacrifice moment at the end which actually makes sense so it doesn't have that little moment of stupidity i suppose um now the okay stuff uh stanley tucci and miranda otto are decent actors so they hold it together and the deaf girl played by someone called kiernan shipka she's fine so that's okay now the bad stuff, the problem is that even if you've got decent actors, they're working with a terrible, terrible script. And it's got very little character development in it. And whatever development there is, is completely predictable. Um, yeah, so this the guy who directed it, I, I, the set pieces are just poorly staged and poorly paced. Uh, and the whole... The, the religious cult aspect is just so dismally lazy and underbaked. It's it, it's just like there's nothing. It's so derivative. It's like, OK, mad religious people rock over the door and it's like, OK, we've seen that before. And it's like you instantly know they're going to be evil just because they're calm. And it's like, yeah. And as I said, the main guy is just he's like a poor man's microchine. Um I think that also that when the religious folks kind of rock up, it points to a key problem in the film's depiction of chronology. Because to me, it seemed like the complete downfall of society occurs across a matter of like 24 to 48 hours. And which 
uh, okay, maybe if it was catastrophic enough, but I'm not sure. This little this religious sect seems extremely well prepared and well organized and like they have a very specific plan for how to come out of this. So I wasn't clear. This is the kind of thing that happens weeks or months down the line, I would imagine. But so that didn't really ring true as well. But it might have just been just because the film was poorly written and poorly edited. I'm not sure. Stanley Tucci and the family in the car where it's all very sort of tension building and stuff. But then when it, when, when that cut turns up, it almost feels like just a different film. Like yeah. they just said, well, we've done that bit now. We've, they've got to have something else to fight. Against. Yeah. It, <clears> it felt like, um, it, it just felt like it was going through all the usual beats of these sorts of movies. Like, yeah, like, the initial realization the the road trip bit the bit where they're kind of trapped in a car the bit where they find like a nice house they settle down and then and then it's like oh well hang on we haven't had enough cliches yet let's throw in um these fundamentalist cultist religious people and it's like yeah it's really poor and if you if you want a kind of high concept sense-based horror uh, like A Quiet Place and Bird Box, and you mentioned Hush as well, which I agree with. Just better sense-based horror. Um, so yeah. This is, it does come across, unfortunately, as a knockoff with decent actors. Yeah, I think that's, you're totally right in the way you said it. it's just a step above Asylum, in that yes. at least it's, it's not knowingly self-referential. It's just, it's a bad film that actually tried to be good by getting decent actors in and a decent budget. Yeah. Um, I also watched Night Train to Terror, which is a horror anthology from 1985. And I want to say that this is probably one of the greatest films I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> it When I watched it, I had no idea of of how bad it was. But when people say, oh, it's so bad, it's good. This is on a pedestal thousands of feet above us in the clouds for god to gaze upon because the things that happen in this film it's it definitely passed the six what test before the the credits had finished rolling it was it's it's, it's the overarching story of it is that you've got god and satan in a small carriage on a train and they watch three sort of stories from three individuals and they have to decide between them if that individual is going to heaven or hell and what that boils down to is just two blokes one with a fake beard sitting on a train looking at a tv um so no. it's a very basic story um also on the train is a band uh like a really bad 80s pop band playing a song called everybody but you which th they keep cutting back to uh, just entire like minutes long sequences of people break dancing and strutting and miming and you say what anyway so the films are uh the first film is about uh and a, a man who crashes with his new newlywed wife into a river she dies he gets institutionalized and then injected with something that hypnotizes him and then he brings back women so they can be hacked up or a sort of organ farming ring that they've got going on in this hospital. This happens in the first 40 seconds. It The editing is pacey. <laughs> it really covers a lot of ground. And it, it's it. there are sequences in it that are... Uh, I almost don't want to spoil them by talking about them. They are baffling. 
baffling the way that the film because i found it afterwards after watching this film that the three stories are three full feature films that are either unreleased or re-edited and brought out under different titles before and after night train of terror but of course they've been they've been hacked down to like 15 20 minutes in length and they did not care i'll quickly if you don't mind i'll quickly go through each one it's almost like they edited out the interesting part so at the start he goes he crashes off this bridge and then he wakes up in this sanitarium and a nurse says to him oh dinner's ready dinner'll be here soon and then he says why am i in a sanitarium i've just been in a car accident which is a question i also had i'm glad he voiced it <laughs> and and then it just cuts to him getting like electroshock therapy and then it's a really hard cut again to him sort of sitting there open mouthed and drooling while a man stands behind him holding a needle with a cap still on that says that injection hypnotized you and then it cuts instantly away <laughs> to something else so it's, it's like well that's then you know he's doing that now and then he's just enticing these women into coming back so they can be hacked up by Richard Moll, who's the only actor actually recognizing the whole thing. Um, and the, the the special effects are bad. It's like, you know, you see the shadow of a knife going up and then blood squirting on the wall. Right. At one part where Richard Moll, who plays this kind of like um, lurch, like orderly, is supposed to be hacking up a woman. You see him lifting up a saw. And then, like, putting it down towards her neck, and the camera pans away to the shadow of the saw on the wall. But the sword doesn't move. You can just see that he's standing there holding the saw, and then blood just squirts all over the wall. And I thought, wow. yeah, but he's not, he's not, he's not even like making the action. He's not motioning um, and, to cut. <laughs> he's not, and also in that scene, you see him after he's killed the woman walk away, and you can just see one of the crew in shot with just 80s trainers on Ooh. and he just kind of hops over to the right but not far enough to be out of shot you see him mm. from at like, the waist down it's just like they do not care what's happening in this film so that's amazing the second uh, of the three is about a man who meets a woman at a circus and falls in love with her but she's like sort of betrothed to this older bloke who is part of a death cult and that's instead right. of just saying should we just leave him to it she, she seems to make make him say oh, no you have to join this death cult and survive these three trials in which one of the cult will die in order to like win her love if i was the bloke i'd just say you piss off actually i think i'll just go somewhere else um um but this is obviously filmed very far apart from each other because there are sequences in this film where the man and the woman have totally different haircuts to the and, and have a totally <laughs> different relationship with each other from scene to scene so it's obviously filmed months apart and because they've cut out so much of the film, you're not sure why they're like in one scene. They're really angry. One scene he's like hitting her. Then she's really in love with him. And then she's really jealous of him. But of course these all happen within like 20 second scenes. So you think there's no flow to this. The best parts of this segment are the things the death cult do to like, I don't know what the point is of these things they do. The first thing they do is all get around like a table and say, we're going to put this Tasmanian wasp out and it's going to fly around and sting one of us to death. And it is early stop motion. It is claymation at its absolute best. And it's just flying around with these POV shots. And then it just flies out of the window. And I thought, right, no, fair enough. And then, and then, and then they say, right, this time we're gonna, one of us is gonna die because we're all gonna strap our heads with like a lobotomy sort of thing, like electrocute, you know, the bronze headbands and mm. round our heads and whatever, so we'll get killed. And we'll leave it up to a supercomputer, which I put it to you is a box with a single light on it with a man doing a voiceover. And it's just him saying, you know, it'll flash red and one of you will die. And, and the bloke, 
dies and there's quite a nice sequence actually where he's like really horrendous sequence where he's like bubbling and bursting and exploding and everyone's like looking at him looking at him and sweating with wild eyes like oh you lucky bugger you got to die um i don't know why they just don't all blow their brains out then they'll just get what they want and the third one was my favorite because they <laughs> there's about six of them in this cult left right and they go to like a it's like a warehouse and they all, they all get into sleeping bags and hold hands and then someone just rotates a bell above them like a huge weight on a rope that's going up against like a like a serrated edge so each time yeah. it spits cutting further through it and i thought that's not totally random is it because if you think about the way that the huge the ton weight is going to swing it's only cutting on one bit so it's only going to land of one it'll fall on one of these two people because <laughs> <laughs> that is the nature of what you're doing um and then yeah when they get past that she just says i love you now because uh, we didn't die on those three trials so we can just be together forever now and it just ends and you're like what wow but- the ed- and then the third one, then I'm, I won't go into it because I'll be afraid, but that's about um, someone who is an, like an eternal sort of son of Satan who travels through the ages um, uh, murdering people and living the high life. And that has some of the most astonishing claymation in it I've ever seen. Scenes in which not only is the monster claymation... They're in, say there's a man in a, in a, like a graveyard and a huge demon appears. It will yeah. cut to the entire scene being claymation. Oh, so you've got Good. like little men running around and stuff. It, it the whole film, I cannot do it justice. It's amazing. I cannot believe it was made and released. And it's it's endlessly entertaining because of the awful acting, the awful dialogue, the absolutely nonsensical plot, the fact that they use every kind of spe- practical special effect they can, regardless of if they can do it or not, <laughs> and just the editing absolutely makes it. The se- I won't give it away. But there's a sequence in the first bit where a, a man turns up to an asylum to find his daughter who's gone missing is is one of the best scenes in cinema history as far as i'm concerned (laughs) he is jolly considering the situation he is in looking for his daughter has clearly been abused and kidnapped he is (laughs) tip-tapping his toes he's (laughs) all of a time and that is (laughs) nitrate of terror it's one of the best films i've ever seen and that's on shudder as i found out that's almost worth the entry price itself i must say I almost want you to not watch it till we're together again because I really, really want to watch that film with you. <laughs> it's that, that I've never incredible. seen anything like it at all. Really? When yeah. was it made? You say the eighties. Nineteen eighty-five. Yeah, oh, slap bang in the middle. You know when you when we watch a bad film and sometimes you'll pause it and say, "Hang on," and then we'll just explain something out loud. We'd and never then... get through it. Yeah, you'd never do it. It would just—it's only about uh, 85, 90 minutes long, but there's so much that there's so much wonder to take in um, and it's so fast that i just thought i'm missing huge parts of this but i don't care because i know i'm going to watch it at least another 15 times in my life <laughs> uh i'm gonna have to hunt down the <laughs> blu-ray special edition steelbook of this aren't i oh, i've, oh, I've well. to buy it it is it is up there in my like there's n- i don't think there's another so bad it's good film that's quite like this it feels completely unique right good um, the Toolbox Murders was made in 1978, uh, and it sounds like it's probably a bit better than uh, Night Train to Terror. Uh, Night Train Two Terror is it called? Night Train Two Terror, yeah. Obviously, doesn't quite make sense. Yeah, um, yeah. So the Toolbox Murders. This is 1978. It's on Prime, um, and I suppose you might it might be grouped in with the early slashers like 
Black Christmas and Halloween, although it is quite different to those films. Um, saying that, it does actually start out very much the same as those films because it's got this disguised killer. Uh, he's stalking this apartment complex in L.A., murdering young sexually active women um, with various tools from his toolbox. Um, the first 30 minutes is basically just killings. It's very grotty and lurid and vo- voyeuristic. Mm. And it was reprehensible enough to earn the video nasty status, as you alluded to earlier. Mm. We, what You saw it's a blue screen. Well, I can reveal <laughs> what's behind the blue screen. <laughs> it's people getting their heads drilled or nail gunned. Uh, it's not that violent by today's standards, I wouldn't say. But it, for the time, it was pretty brutal. It, it must have been. Um, so anyway, so these various killings. But then the killer kidnaps someone and doesn't kill her. This uh, 15-year-old teenage girl. And and then we start to understand his motivation. And it is very disturbing indeed. There's this mm. astonishing scene where, which must go on for about 15 minutes, but where she is bound and gagged in bed and he comes in and he he's basically just he's being really he's explaining to her in very gentle loving terms almost what that basically she is the replacement for the daughter he lost years ago so it's really creepy in itself um i guess the kind of like the the idea behind it is that the the women he's killed are beyond the age that his daughter was. So they've become sexually active and they've become, if you like, tainted or corrupted. Whereas this girl, she's younger and she's still pure and innocent. And so he's trying to like keep her in that state. Meanwhile, uh, the girl's brother is investigating the case because the police are completely useless. Um, But he is investigating the case with the killer's nephew, who may or may not know about his uncle's crimes. So yeah, after the kind of slasher film opening, the film turns into this sort of part detective thriller and, and turns into a kind of psychological Freudian horror. The detective stuff is pretty bland and pretty poorly acted, but the horror element is genuinely disturbing. Uh, I know that Stephen King apparently regards this as one of his favorite horror movies. Okay. So, um, which is pretty good accolade, I suppose. Um, the last, the final act is very, very dark. And the fact that the film actually tries to explain the killer's motivations um, kind of set it apart from those aforementioned slashes, or indeed most slashes, really, because they tend to kind of conceptualize or simplify the motivation. The fact that this goes out of its way to really explain where he's coming from doesn't make you sympathetic but yeah. it makes it very, even darker than those other movies in a way um and then and it's got this really really doom laden music which just sounds like whenever anyone's on screen they're just about to die so so that's pretty grim um i mean technically speaking it's a pretty ropey film and the performances are highly variable uh, and the production values are, are poor and you, there are characters who just who come along and you know introduce themselves, but are immediately written out the script. So <laughs> strange in that regard. But it's also pure kind of grindhouse gold. It's got a really 
grimy, grainy atmosphere. And all the lighting is either fluorescent, fluorescently stark or just non-existent. Um, and it really kind of delivers in terms of gore and psycho horror creepiness. So this one is recommended, The Toolbox Murders. I think it was remade by Tobe Hooper um, fairly recently. I haven't seen the remake, but apparently that was quite good. So I might well try and catch up on that. But yeah, the original, I don't think you'll, you can't possibly capture the grindhouse mood of the original, I wouldn't say. Uh, but yeah, that was pretty good. Oh, yeah. I, I I haven't seen that for I because you were talking about the the killer's motives being explained, which is unusual, and this is nineteen seventy eight as well. Yeah, which is yeah really early, quite cool. I yeah I have to be in the mood for those kind of really full on slashes, but I'm gonna just read about it after we do this actually, just to refresh my memory because I'm sure I've seen it a very long time ago. Like it would have been on VHS. It was so long ago. So did you yeah. watch it on VHS or was it Laserdisc? <laughs> no, it was it was uh, actually. Uh, dvd copied from vhs so uh <laughs> oh my god blue screen intact <laughs> if only. no this is on prime well, but i clearly will be buying the blu-ray nice um i just had a look while you were talking then and night train to terror is like six quid on ebay for dvd and i'm, I'm so close to buying that i i need to watch it again with you we'll have to we'll have to have a special night together oh yes, yes. um the last film, uh, so that's all of your films, I guess. Or have you got one I, more? I have one sleeve? more. Nice. Okay, this is my final film, and this is a film starring Omar Epps called Trick. Um, this is on Netflix, or is it Prime? I'm going to say... I'm going to say... Oh, it's on uh, Netflix. So this is a film... Uh, it's kind of a slasher film. Um set in modern day with Omar Epps as a detective trying to hunt down this possibly supernatural killer um, trick who dresses up as a sort of uh, pumpkin headed hoodie teenager thing. And it's called trick because he calls himself trick, but as the character's full name is Patrick Weaver, Patrick, you see, um, did that. now this film isn't very good. Mm because it is directed by uh, someone I did have is uh, Patrick Lucia who has done a few films in an odd twist he started off as an editor and edited some pretty big films and then he did some writing on some pretty big films and his directing contains both bad writing and editing that he does himself so I don't know why people hire him really so this film starts off with in 2015 and there's a, it's like a you know, a, 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 what's it called? A prom party sort of uh, fancy dress thing. And they're playing a game of Spin the Knife, a game we've all played at some point. Spin um, the Knife. <laughs> spin the Knife into my throat. Um, yeah, so they spin it on the floor, and then whoever it lands on, you've got to kiss. He does not kiss anyone. <laughs> he, he twists his max around to a creepy face and hacks everyone to death. But he instantly gets captured. And taken to a hospital where Omar Epps, is, the detective, sort of turns up to question him and say, why did you kill everyone? And he escapes from the hospital, gets shot, falls out of a window that's about 20 feet up. And then when they go down, he's disappeared, leaving a trail of blood into a freezing river that's zero degrees. And they say he wouldn't survive that. And they're probably right. But next year on Halloween, he returns and kills another six people. And this happens every successive Halloween up until 2019. 
where the film mostly takes place and it's him basically saying Omar Epps saying right I'm actually going to stop him this time it's an odd film because the killer uh, trick kills more people in this single film than Freddy and Jason and Michael Myers combined in everything they've ever done he hacks his way past anyone he sees with this kind of little utility life with his own name on that he uses and it's whilst some of the deaths are quite cool you know and and it's a typical slasher the the problem is just that it's the whole thing about the film saying is it is it supernatural is it the same guy is it a copycat it's not interesting enough to warrant just Mm. these stupid boring dialogue that goes on and also the sound design is awful. I was just constantly fiddling with the volume because people would talk really quietly, and I'd be like, oh, "Turn it up!" And then all of a sudden, like a se- you know a horror sequence would happen, I'd have to turn it all the way down. And it was never, it never felt comfortable. Um, oh when it kind of reveals its cards, it's a bit really, and it's just <laughs> so many of the, the things that happen just rely on like it have to be so well planned. There's a sequence as well where Omar Epps says, oh, you know, only I can stop him. He's after me because I shot him all those years ago. He's he's always there. He's always, whenever I turn my back, I, he's, he's always after me. He's just he's always on my back. It was like a shadow. And I thought, well, he's not, is he? Because he specifically comes up for one day of the year. So for the other 364 days, you're quite fine. It's just on this one day. <laughs> Um, and if you are convinced that he's after you, why don't you just drive into the middle of nowhere and then it's just you and him and not hang around frat parties and stuff, really drawing attention and dragging a lot of innocence into the, the mix. So it's just not very good. And it was, a, it was a bit of a disappointment because when you look at... I'll just actually get up my phone now if I type in Patrick Lucia. Um, it just kind of expected more than like a really boring... Uh, where are we? Uh, Patrick Lucia. So he is a Canadian filmmaker who, yeah. So he edited like a Drive Angry, White Noise, Red Eye, Scream 3, Halloween H2O, Mimic. And then he, as a writer on <clears throat> Terminator Genesis, Drive yes. Angry, Dracula 1, 2, and 3. And, and then his editing. Is sorry, his directorial stuff where he writes down and edits it is so bad, and you just think you've this isn't like a first effort. This is it. Just it feels like it should be far better than it is, even as a throwaway slasher, because the editing is just it's um as you mentioned before, there's no sort of you've got no sense of geography where anyone is at any point. Yeah. Characters just come and disappear minutes at a time, and then turn up at key moments, and then uh, Scott, uh, Tom Adkins is in it, which is good. Good. He is. And I will say that the best part of the film was seeing Tom Atkins, who is about 83, and he's still quite sprightly. It's quite nice to see. He's not like a doddering old man. He looks old, but there's some scenes this where he runs around and he's like, he's still quite a good screen presence, which is cool to see. Kind of that is the highlight he's of the always film, looked 83. <laughs> yeah. I actually thought he was getting younger. <laughs> um, and Omar Epps as well. I, I only really know Omar Epps from. Obviously, Def Jam fight for New York, Naturally. but also from the House TV yeah. series, and he was yeah. really good in that. And I wanted him to be good in this, and he just, it just, it, this, it's not him. It's just the script and the and the direction is just so weak mm. that it's just yeah, nothing really gets going. So it's one to avoid. Although saying that, there's a lot of deaths in it, and um, you know it's quite graphic. So if you fancy that, maybe that'll carry you through. Mm. Yeah, probably not quite enough. I mean, I like a good, I like a good slasher death, but you know, it's not enough. 
I don't think. I mean, it was, and, it was and enough something as well about a film. <laughs> it's one of the something that irks me as well about this sort of thing. It's when a film thinks it's being cleverer than it is, and um, and and you, it's it's quite embarrassing. You feel a little bit like cringeworthy watching it, so that's not good. No. Okay. Well, let's take a, it's a bit of a juxtaposition here because I'm going to talk about hairspray. Um, not the product, but the film. This is from 2007. We've already done the sponsorship. <laughs> um, this is the sort of remake from 2007, um, which is currently on Prime. So John Waters wrote and directed the original film in 1988, which was not a musical, but it was intended for a, quite a wide audience, especially compared with his earlier works. I've never seen John Waters' Hairspray, but I have seen several of his other films including the likes of Multiple Maniacs, Polyester, Pink Flamingos, and Serial Mom. And they are all very transgressive and deliberately kind of shocking and reprehensible in their own ways. And John Waters, he hasn't made a movie in ages, but all his films that I've seen have been about portraying the marginalised, basically, and the deviance of society. And he tended to approach things in this kind of intersectional way where he throw in all kinds of deviant behavior into the mix. Um, Hairspray is a lot more wholesome than all that. It's set in 1962. Um, and uh, which is before the repealing of segregation laws in the U S um, it's about this plump teenager named Tracy who longs to be on this local daily dance show. Uh, and she gets the gig, but it's not enough for her. She wants to abolish the regular so-called Negro day, and she wants to fight for integration. So the marginals here are basically fat people and black people. <laughs> that is essentially it. Oh. And, um, and basically what happened was that, obviously, John Waters made this film in 1988. It was then made into a Broadway musical, and this is very much based on the musical. So it's got all the songs, it's got all the choreography and stuff. Um, it's really about, in terms of the plot, it's about how various members of the community kind of react to this integrationist campaign. Um, for example, like the showrunner, uh, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, who looks amazing, um, is she's appalled at the kind of danger to the pure white Aryan representation. Uh, the station boss is just going with kind of market forces. The presenter, played by James Marsden, he is he's just going with the beat of the nation, whatever the people want sort of thing. Tracy's mother, played by John Travolta, is mm. worried about uh, her daughter's personal safety. And then there's a star of the show, played by Zac Efron, who is worried about his career. So Basically, everyone has something to lose with this campaign. Um, but if only they could see that in the end, everyone will gain. Um, yeah, so I mentioned, you may notice that I mentioned John Travolta is playing the mother. Yes. yes. Uh, and he does it very well. It was The reason for this is because the role was originally uh, taken by uh, Divine uh, in the original film. Um, Divine was a, uh, a drag queen. Um, by the name, his real name was Harris Milstead, and he was basically John Waters' muse. He was in most of his films, maybe all of his films, uh, all the ones I've seen. And it was uh, an interesting relationship. And it was 
divine is a, a very unique looking individual uh quite grotesque in a way but at the same time quite uh i don't know there was something about her his her personality which was quite kind of appealing that it was like just this complete confidence in the fact that uh, she really believed she was a woman if you see what i mean but mm. clearly not and that was kind of the kind of the joke really anyway harris mills said he died uh literally weeks after um the filming had finished on the original so it makes sense that someone took up that role and john travolta does pretty well he's obviously got a dance background and stuff and he does throw himself into it um i'd say the only real casting misstep in the film is christopher walken who plays the father of the girl he just seems a bit old and a bit lifeless i'm not sure why they chose him because he's he like runs a joke shop as well and he's not really he's a bit too dark and kind of glowering to be in charge of a joke shop but anyway um it's it's a very bright and positive movie and it's all kind of based on the energy of Nikki Blonsky who plays uh, Tracy, the girl, the main girl, this kind of plump girl who can dance. Um, she was played by Ricky Lake, I think in the original. Um, this, I like how it confronts the kind of segregation issue head on uh, not in any particular deep way, but it's almost in the way that kind of kids that kids would confront obvious social injustices and it very much straight head on and highlight the absurdities in those injustices. So that's quite, that's quite cool. There isn't a whole, a whole bunch of drama really, or peril because 90% of the people in the film are just very kind and decent people. But I thinking it probably would have been a bit of a drag if it had depicted like this constant endless pushback against racial progress um, I guess what it, it's saying is that public opinion often outpaces social systems and traditions. So when things do change, when laws do change, then actually people are ready for it because they're already on board, if you see what I mean. It is absolutely packed with songs. It's practically an <sighs> opera. It, like, it, it just never stops. Every, every scene is a song. And some are better than others. And they are a bit samey, but... In particular, the last performance is pretty kind of epic. Um, I don't know. I, I may go back and watch the John Waters original, but I'm wondering if it might feel a bit lifeless without the songs. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I'll definitely check it out because I I know that John Waters wouldn't have made a film this kind of cosy and safe. So I'm interested to see where yes. he was coming from. Okay, that's cool. Does anyone sing I Got Five on it by the Loonies at any point? Unfortunately, not. But that one was. Mr. They sing every other song in existence except that one. Unfortunately, that means they sing Green Day "Time of Your Life." So I'm not watching that film. <laughs> um, still, still listening. And Ocean Drive by Lighthouse Family. <laughs> and Higher by Lighthouse Family. And Beautiful South. Oh God. Um, right then. So I guess we're at the uh, the film of the week moment. <sighs> Have you got a clear winner for yourself? While I look at mine. Well, let's see now. Um, it's always the case that I kind of want to highlight the the lesser known one, but I think it's quite easy this time around. The Lighthouse is just such a unique and weird, dark and funny 
little horror film that I mean I like the toolbox murders but that was more it was just a surprise the lighthouse I was fully expecting it to be good and it was as good if not better than I was expecting so the lighthouse would be my choice I think that's going to be very much a film I'm going to watch soon Um, for me yeah maybe through a mirror or something um (laughs) Maybe one of Henry's mirrors. <laughs> one of one of Henry's mirrors. <laughs> um, you yeah, just try, you try and sit down and watch the lighthouse through one of Henry's mirrors, and you just see someone's ass. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's like, put some chaps on with an ass, Henry, for God's sake. Uh, um, yeah, the host was was good fun. Project Power was good fun. Hotel Artemis was really nice. That was a close. I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that for like a lot of reasons. But I'm gonna have to choose Night Train to Terror because when a oh. film stops you in your tracks and and as you're watching it you're already thinking i have to buy this and i have to watch it with various groups of people you know that it's a, it's a real keeper it's a real special treat um well there you go. that's another that's another line for the poster then isn't it uh, night train to terror it'll stop you in your tracks oh my god that is <laughs> <laughs> and that single line of dialogue that I forgot even as I spoke it is better than anything in the film. <laughs> uh, so amazing Night Train to Terror with Richard Moll. So yeah, that's it. And this will be the last one we do for a while because you're such an imminent parent. It's, it's unbelievable. so close now. There is a <laughs> child bursting to come out. <laughs> bursting to come out and watch Night Train to Terror with us and a few Gerald Lancasters. <laughs> oh god that's really gonna stick isn't it okay yeah so uh yeah so well this is goodbye for for now but we'll be back we're gonna have such a list of films <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. okay well love to you and uh, your lovely wife and i shall speak to you soon okay take care all my love bye bye bye